Now, this morning's lesson is three areas of the Bible that I want to refer you to, and I want you to keep these scriptures as I quote them in mind during the course of this lesson. Beginning with Matthew 16 and 24, where Jesus says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and come, follow me. Then over at Hebrews 12 and 1, where the writer says that, Seeing we've been encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and run with patience the race which is set before us. Then over in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter the 13th verse, where the Apostle Paul says, There's no temptation taken you that's not common to all men. But God who is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear or endure. But as with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Now keep those verses in mind as we go through this lesson. Because the lesson is entitled, Everyone Has a Cross. And everyone Has a Besetting Sin, as the Hebrew writer makes reference to in Hebrews 12 and 1. A sin where the devil knows that we're our weakest and where he can tempt us and where he works on us and the area that he attempts to cause us to reject Christ and to follow after him, attempts to influence us to sin. Uh, to sin. Now, with many people, that besetting weakness might be excessive sensuality. Now, that was David's great problem. David, the Bible says, had a harem of wives. His son Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had access to all the women that he could possibly have wanted. And yet he lusted after Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He lusted after a woman who was, did not belong to him. And he committed adultery with her. And that sin tormented David for the rest of his life. The child that was born through that sin died in infancy. And the sin seemed to plague David and bother David all the years that he lived on this earth. Now to you people in this assembly, who, to the television audience who have committed adultery, what you need to do is repent of that sin and promise God that you'll never commit it again and go forward. Those of you who are thinking about committing the sin of adultery, I hope that you'll weigh the consequences of that sin. When it comes to sin now, the Bible doesn't categorize sin. That is, the Bible doesn't teach that there's big black sins and little white sins. The Bible teaches that sin is sin. And all sin must be repented of if we hope to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. But when it comes to the consequences of sin on this earth... There is no greater sin, no worse sin than the sin of adultery. The sin of adultery is the most personal of all sins when it comes to hurting other people. I heard about a professional man one time who was having a problem, and it was obvious to his wife that he was having a problem. Well, with the passing of time, it came out that his problem was drugs. He had become addicted to drugs, and the wife was supposed to have said, Thank God, I thought it was another woman. Or thank God that it wasn't another woman. You see, that wife could stand by her husband being addicted to drugs and stand by him proudly. But if he had committed the sin of adultery, if he had been having an affair, it would have been very difficult for that woman to stand by her husband. There is no sin that is more personal than the sin of adultery. No sin that carries with it greater consequences, negative consequences than the sin of adultery. It destroys homes. It's a personal sin against the innocent mate. It's a personal sin against your children. It's a personal sin against your parents. It's a sin that so affects your entire life that if anyone would just analyze it and think about it, they would make certain that they wouldn't commit that sin. And if they have committed that sin, to repent of it and put it behind them and turn from it and go forward the way God would have us to go forward. It's a sin that simply destroys Marriages destroys lives, 
jeopardizes souls. If a person doesn't repent of the sin, there's no way on the face of this earth that he can ever be pleasing to God. Jeopardizes the salvation of the children's souls because it breaks up homes, causes divorces, causes children to be brought up without one of their parents. And the consequences of that sin are absolutely enormous and overwhelming. So if that's your besetting problem, if that's your besetting weakness, pray to God to give you the strength to overcome that weakness. And remember Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 that there's no temptation taking you that's not common to all men. But God who is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you can endure. But as with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Maybe your besetting weakness is alcohol. Now, I can relate to people who have problems with alcohol. My dad was a semi- alcoholic. My father-in-law was a alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic. At least two of my uncles and probably more like three or four of them, but at least two of them were out-and-out alcoholics. I've been around alcoholics all of my life. I remember as a young man, not too long after my wife and I were married, I was at my wife's home, my father-in-law and mother-in-law's home, and my father-in-law was talking to me about this problem I had with smoking at that time. I was attempting to give up smoking, trying very hard to give it up, finally gave it up when I was 25 years old for good. But anyway, at that time, I was having a very difficult time giving up smoking. My father-in-law said to me, Gordon, you know the problems you're having giving up smoking? I said, yes, sir. He said, that is child's play compared to trying to give up drinking when a person is addicted to alcohol. Friends and brethren, one of the hypocrisies of our day is the fact that we take a stand against uh, cocaine and crack and marijuana and those type drugs and rightfully so, friends and brethren, because those type drugs are threatening the very fabric of our society. And I, for one, believe that we have got to pass and enforce laws, however extreme they might be, to stop these drug pushers and these peddlers of drugs and the people that are bringing drugs into our country and getting our young people started on those drugs and ruining and destroying their lives. We can't enact, as far as I'm concerned, penalties too harsh when it comes to the bringing in of drugs and the selling of drugs or the sale of drugs. But one of the hypocrisies of our day is that though we are taking a stand against these type drugs and though we preach against these type drugs and we put up bumper stickers and signs all over that read, just say no. At the very same time, we promote, advertise, and glamorize the drinking of alcoholic beverages. And the drinking of alcoholic beverages is this is the consuming of a, another drug just as certain as smoking marijuana or taking crack or cocaine is imbibing in drugs. And the drug of alcohol has destroyed more lives on this earth than all other drugs combined. History and eternity will only reveal in etern only eternity will reveal how many women have been violated by someone under the influence of alcohol. How many wives have been battered by someone under the influence of alcohol. How many children have been abused by someone under the influence of alcohol. How many crimes have been committed by someone under the influence of alcohol. It's a drug that works on people in the most negative way. And what does it do for people in a positive sense? Has any man or any woman ever been made a better man or a better woman because of the use of alcoholic beverages? Does the use of alcoholic beverages make a person a better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better mother, a better son, a better daughter? Does it make one more spiritual? Does it bring one closer to God? Does it put them in more of a prayerful state of mind? Is there anything that we can say about alcohol in the positive sense that contributes in a positive sense to someone's life? How many people are killed out on the highways every year? 
because of an individual driving under the influence of alcohol. And they have proven that one or two bottles of beer, one highball can alter your reflexes to the point that you become a menace on the highway. And alcohol has changed more people than anything else that you could think of. I remember as a young boy how proud I used to be of my daddy when he wasn't drinking. And I recall how deathly ashamed I used to be of him when he was drinking. All the difference of night and day between when he was drinking and when he wasn't drinking. I have never known a person in all of my life, and I've been personally acquainted with literally hundreds of people that drank alcoholic beverages. That was a way of life with me. I grew up around it. I was drinking alcoholic beverages when I was a teenager, going into bar rooms when I was 17 years of age and forging my birth certificate. I grew up with alcohol, drank it all of my life till I, till I became a New Testament Christian. I could speak authoritatively about that subject or on that subject. And I have never known a person of all the hundreds of people that I have known who drank alcoholic beverages who was ever made a better person because of the drinking of alcohol. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. If your problem is alcohol, if that's your besetting weakness, if that's where the devil tempts you, pray to God to give you the strength to overcome that weakness. And pray to God that you can, that you can so overcome it that it won't be that great problem in your life. Pray that God will help you to see how that beverage can literally ruin your life on this earth and cause you to lose your soul for a never-ending eternity. Maybe your besetting weakness is that of selfishness. I've prepared this sermon, thought about the subject or the sin of selfishness. In all of the years that I've been preaching the gospel, some 25 years now, all of the confessions that I've heard, now, we in the church don't tell people to enumerate their sins to us when they come forward. They simply say that they have sinned and ask for God's forgiveness. But in many instances, people have enumerated their sins. People have come into my office for counseling and have enumerated their sins to me. And I've heard many, many sins confessed to. But one of the sins that I've never heard anyone confess to is the sin of selfishness. Yet I'm pretty much convinced that that sin might be the most prevalent the sin in all the world. Might be the sin that more people have a problem with than any other sin in all of the world. Might be the besetting weakness of more people than any other sin of which you can think. Over in First Kings, the third chapter, we've got a great story there about the two women. The King James Version calls them prostitutes, but they had little babies. They had babies, and they were living in this house together. And one night, one of the lady's little infant died and she took that infant and she carried over to the other room to the crib wherever they kept the babies then she put the dead infant in the, ba in the live baby's crib and took the live baby back into her room well the next morning when the mother of the baby that was alive but now had a dead baby in the crib awoke she went to the crib to get her baby and saw that the baby was dead and looked at the baby and recognized immediately that it was not her baby so she took the baby into the other room and told that lady, recognized that this lady had her baby, said, you've got my baby. You switched your, our babies during the night. You put your dead baby in my live baby's place and took my baby to your room. And the other woman said, no, I didn't. This is my baby. Your baby is the dead baby. Well, they couldn't settle the problem, couldn't resolve the issue, so they went before King Solomon. And the real mother said, now this woman stole my baby during the night and put her dead baby in the place of my baby. And the other woman said, that's not true. I didn't, I didn't uh, reverse or exchange the babies. Her baby died and she just wants my live baby. And there was a, they were at loggerheads. 
There was just simply no way for them to resolve the problem. So Solomon said, what are we going to do about this situation? This woman claims it's her baby, and that the other one replaced the babies, and this woman claims that it's her baby, and she didn't replace the baby. She said, well, I guess the only thing we can do is cut the baby in half and give each of them half. Well, now, the baby who had taken, who had, the woman who had taken her dead baby and replaced it with, and take the live, took the live baby in its place, she immediately said, well, that'll be okay. I guess that'll resolve the problem. We both have half the baby. The other woman said, we can't do that. Give the baby to that woman. Anything to keep the baby alive. Anything for the baby to have life. I'll forfeit all claims to the baby. And Solomon said, give the baby to the real mother. The mother that did not want the baby cut in half. And all of the people marveled at Solomon's wisdom. Well, it looked to me like just a common sense situation. Solomon knew that the real mother would never accept the idea of cutting the baby in half. He knew that the one who wasn't the real mother might accept that so-called solution. Now, what was the problem with this woman who would have accepted the baby being cut in half? Was her problem that she had lost her baby? Now, certainly she was remorseful. Certainly she was upset by losing her baby. But that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was that she was envious of her friend having a live baby. She was not nearly as upset over the fact that her baby had died as she was over the fact that her friend had a baby that she didn't have. And if Solomon would have passed some kind of a ruling in which they both would have been without a baby, the woman would have been satisfied because she was selfish. Her sin was selfishness. She did not want her friend to have what she did not have. Isn't selfishness probably the motivating factor behind 98 or 99 percent of our sins? Isn't it selfishness that causes a man or a woman to be unfaithful to their mate, to go out and commit adultery, to have an affair? Isn't that pure, unadulterated selfishness? Who are they thinking of when they do something like that? They're not thinking of their mate. They're not thinking of their children. They're not thinking of their parents. They're thinking simply of satisfying those capricious whims of the human anatomy. They're simply seeking that momentary gratification. They're simply seek seeking some kind of pleasure in this life at the expense of everything that's decent, honorable, and good and righteous. Why? Because they're selfish. What causes the person to drink alcoholic beverages? When he knows that it doesn't make him a better husband or a better wife or a better parent. When he knows that it's only going to hurt his relationship with his wife or her husband or with her children if it's not just out and out plain unadulterated selfishness. I'm convinced that the vast majority of problems on this earth, the vast majority of problems, if you will, in the church, are because of out and out selfishness and jealousy. Jealousy over someone else's good fortune or jealousy over someone else accomplishing a little bit more than I'm accomplishing or somebody else is accomplishing. And I'm telling you what, friends and brethren, we talk about categorizing sins. I don't know if there's too many sins that would be any worse than the sins of selfishness. Our country, our world is getting in bad shape because of selfishness on the part of people. Because of greed on the part of people. Because nobody is satisfied. Nobody has enough. Everybody wants more. We make $12 an hour, $13 an hour, $14 an hour, $15 an hour, and we're as happy as we can be until we find out that somebody else is making $15.50 an hour. Athletes sign contracts for a million and a half dollars a year, more money than many people make in a lifetime, as happy as they can be until they find out somebody else is making a million six hundred thousand dollars a year. 
out and out utter selfishness. It's a never-ending vicious circle because nobody's willing to say, we've got enough, let's be satisfied. The prices keep going up. Inflation keeps getting worse. Everything keeps, keeps getting worse. The deficit keeps getting worse. I'm telling you, friends and brethren, with all the love that's within me. Greed and selfishness is what's going to do us all in. And greed and selfishness are among the most prevalent of all sins. And undoubtedly, with many, many people, there be setting weakness, if not there be setting sin. So if your problem is with the sin of selfishness, pray to God to give you the grace and the strength and the faith to overcome that weakness. Pray to God that your attitude would be that you'll rejoice with those who are accomplishing something and weep with those who experience setbacks in that you won't be jealous or envious of your next-door neighbor in that you'll be satisfied with what you have in life. Be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in whatever state that I'm in. So many of us, friends and brethren, are not able to be content or willing to be content. We become extremely selfish, and that selfishness leads to so many problems in this world. Your problem or your besetting weakness might be you just don't have any faith. You just can't believe the miracles that you read in the Bible. You can't believe about the God or the Christ or the church that you read about in the Bible. Well, now, if that's your besetting weakness, if that's where the devil tempts you, let me ask you to do something that I think would help you to overcome those tendencies to doubt God and even to doubt the Bible. Go out some night and sit in your backyard or wherever you have access to the West and watch as the earth is revolving around the sun in such a way that that sun is setting in the West. Last fall, after I completed a gospel meeting in the Northeast, my wife accompanied me and we took a week's vacation. We spent uh, two nights in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We had a motel room right on the ocean, and the west was off to our left. And the first night that we were there, we sat out in the balcony, and I watched that sun setting in the west behind that ocean. I looked over at my wife and I said, Jeanette, anybody who could observe a sight like that and still deny that there's a God, surely there guilty in the sense that Paul talks about Romans 1 and 20 when he says they're without excuse. Anybody who can behold the intricacies of this universe and the beauty of this universe and the preciseness of this universe and deny that there's a God who created it and a God who sustained it because all things can consist through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 and 17, all things consist because of him. He sustains this universe. Anyone who could look at that setting sun in the west and deny that Friends and brethren, that person is absolutely without excuse. You may have problems with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many people deny the resurrection of Christ because they don't see anybody being resurrected today. And it's one of those miracles that God performed in biblical days which supersede or transcend nature. In biblical days, God performed miracles that superseded or transcended nature in order, as we read in Mark 16 and 20, to confirm the word. With the confirming of the word, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning with the 8th verse, those miracles which superseded or transcended nature cease. God no longer works in that manner. There's nobody being born of a virgin today. Nobody being raised from the dead today. No seas being parted today. Nobody being fed with manna from heaven today. No water coming out of rocks today. God worked in that manner in biblical times in order to confirm the word, but the word has been confirmed. But now, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, last Sunday... The world celebrated what we call Easter Sunday. Now, the Bible doesn't know anything about Easter Sunday. The Bible tells us to come together on the first day of each week and partake of the Lord's Supper, which is to remind us of his death, burial, resurrection, and the fact that he's going to come again. But anyway, the point is, 
is almost 2,000 years after Jesus Christ was on this earth, the world still sets aside a day to honor his resurrection in memory of his resurrection. You know, if I didn't know anything else, friends and brethren, that one fact would be overwhelming evidence in my mind that Jesus Christ must have arose. All of the atheists and all of the skeptics and all of the agnostics who've attacked the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years, out of all of them combined, not a single solitary one of them has been able to disprove the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ still stands out as the central theme in all of history. Why? Because the evidence is overwhelming that he arose. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, begin with the first verse, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, the gospel that I preached to you, by which you are saved, wherein you received, received if ye believe, unless ye have believed in vain, and how first though I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, then was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, then was seen of over five hundred brethren at one time, the greater part which remained with us, some which have fallen asleep, then was seen of James, then was seen of me as one born out of due season. Paul said, look it, we don't think that Jesus arose. We're not guessing that he arose. We know he arose because all of these people saw him in his resurrected form. The apostles eat and drank with him in his resurrected form. Over 500 brethren saw him in his resurrected form. I had that confrontation with him on the Damascus Road. The road after he ascended back into heaven. In Acts 1.11, you men of Galilee, why stand ye there gazing into the heavens? For this same Jesus that you have seen ascend into the heavens shall come in like manner that you have seen him go. Paul says they saw him. Acts 1.11 says they watched him ascend back into heaven. Peter said in, in Acts 2 and 32, Where is God that raised this man up and we are all witnesses? In Acts 3 and 15, you have killed the Prince of Peace whom God has raised up and we are witnesses. In Acts 4 and 20, we cannot help but speak those things which we have both seen and heard. They weren't guessing. They saw Jesus in his resurrected form. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, the apostles were cowardly men. He had out in upper room in Jerusalem when Jesus was being crucified. John was the only apostle that stood at the bottom of the cross. Peter followed him from afar off. After Jesus' crucifixion, after he was resurrected, after he appeared to the apostles, and after he appeared to Thomas, Thomas wasn't there that first Lord's Day after the resurrection, so he denied that Jesus had been resurrected, and these other apostles hadn't been there. They would have denied it also because they weren't expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. After they saw that he was resurrected, then, friends and brethren, they became the most courageous men who ever lived. Gave their very life for Jesus. Never again do we read where the apostles ever vacillated or equivocated in any way, shape, or form when it came to the relationship with the Lord. Because they knew that he had risen. They had a resurrected Savior. And that's who they worshipped. And that's who they preached. And that's who... Through him, they could one day be with God for that never-ending eternity. So if that's your besetting weakness, think of the evidence to prove that there's a God and the evidence to prove that Jesus Christ was whom he claimed to be. Maybe your besetting weakness is that you just can't accept what the Bible teaches on baptism. A whole lot of people in the world have that problem. Now, I know some of you are saying that there is a ch typical Church of Christ preacher can't preach a sermon in which he doesn't mention baptism. Well, that might be true. Because, you see, baptism is a part of God's plan of salvation. I can't preach a sermon and tell you what you must do in order to appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ to your life without mentioning baptism any more than I can, than I can uh, teach.
teach you what to do to appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ your life without mentioning belief, without mentioning repentance, without mentioning the living the Christian life. All of those things work together. They are conditions that the Lord has laid down that we must meet in order for Him to save us. Baptism is no more important or no less important than believing. It's no more important or no less important than repenting. It's no more important or no less important than living of the Christian life. It's just simply equally as important. It's a part of what Jesus taught. But baptism is where all of the controversy is. I don't have to convince 99% of you in this television audience that you have to believe in order to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. I don't have to convince you that you have to repent in order to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. But I have to convince you that in order to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord, you must obey Him in baptism too. When you believe, that takes an act of your will. It's a decision that you must make. The Lord doesn't do that for you. When you repent, that's an act of your will. It's a decision that you must make. The Lord doesn't do that for you. You must also, through an act of your own will, through the decision that you make, be obedient to Him in baptism in order to contact His blood so that He can save you. Now, it's His blood that saves you. You cannot preach a sermon, a scriptural sermon on how to be saved without talking about the blood of Jesus. You've got to mention what Jesus told us to do in order to contact that blood. But it also has to be pointed out as plainly as possible that it is the blood of Christ that saves, having been redeemed, not by corruptible things such as silver and gold, which you receive from the vain conversation and traditions of your fathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb without blemish and the Lamb without spot, First Peter 1 and 18. Having received the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, having been redeemed by His blood, Colossians 1 and 14 and Ephesians 1 and 7. So what I want you to believe is what the Bible teaches on the subject of how to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must be willing to confess Jesus before men. You must be immersed with your Savior into Christ for the remission of your sins because that's where the... You meet the blood of Christ, contact the blood of Christ, you're baptized into his death, Paul says in Romans 6, 3 and 4, and the blood of Christ then cleanses you of your sins and your weaknesses and your shortcomings. You become a new person with a new hope, a new, new goal and a new purpose in life. And if you're besetting weaknesses that the devil tempts you to disbelieve what the Bible teaches on such things as baptism, don't let him do that, friends and brethren. Talking to my friends outside of the church now. Believe what Jesus said when he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Whatever your besetting weakness might be, don't give in to it. Ask God to help you to overcome it. Live the way God would have you to live. Recognize that all human beings have crosses to bear. Thank all of you so much for watching this program. May God bless you.